What did you think of my eulogies? Very touching. I might have cut back on the F words a little. Well, they were fucking great guys. And this is a fucking asshole of a day. I know. It's just that their kids were there. They left. Because of your use of heavy language. Well, fuck them. I should have been in that van. But you weren't. No, I wasn't. And nobody's gonna regret that more than cunt. We're about that. Look, I'm taking you off the case. I'm sorry, I must have heard wrong. Because I thought I just heard you say, McGruber about that, look, I'm taking you off the case. That's exactly what I said. Damn it, Jim, you can't do that! Okay, I'm the best chance you got. You told me yourself at the monastery. But the game has changed. But the players are the same. Mac, I got no choice. <laughs> there is like this element of like Hannibal's back and he's got a new bag. <laughs> or, so, yeah, I feel good, doodle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there is like and he expected him to like do like a like a like a spin or a pirouette or like one of those like fiddler on the roof, <laughs> jump and kick your feet kind of things. Like the it's like the VO guy who does all the Disney movies is going to be doing the 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 trailer yeah. top voiceover. Do you remember all of the lessons we learned from Manhunter and Silence of the Lambs? Let's take none of them and make this movie. Yeah. What if Hannibal was actually your your wacky cool friend? I. Yeah. And oh, that's how did he get that job of being like this like scholar who has other <laughs> scholars fly to Italy to hear him talk, and no one picks up on the fact that he's like one of the like a one of the most notorious like. Here's your new teacher, Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> you know, that's like the that, that is this. I guess that was maybe work in like the 1700s, like before the internet. Maybe, but, did, but, but like, as we learned from Hannibal, the internet is real. Oh, and, it's around, baby. And the, it's and, around. And, yeah, and it's powered by a little company called Net Zero. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Hello, uh, and welcome to the award-winning podcast, The Academy Academy, the show that discovers the absolute, undeniable. And scientifically proven greatest performance in your favorite actor's esteemed career. I'm Don Saunderson. Hooey, I'm Patrick Remian. Welcome to the Academy. And today we're talking about spies and the games that they play. <laughs> and <laughs> serial killers and the charm that they exude. Uh, these little quirky goofballs. These, these rapscallions. Taking us back to the Stone Ages of 2001. And of course, we're doing a double feature today. Both Scott brothers. It's been a been a bit, been a bit a bit of moments since we've actually covered both of them in one episode. I know uh, it's been a while. And if we are talking about Ridley Scott's Hannibal, released mm-hmm. February 9th of two thousand one, mm-hmm. and Tony Scott's Spy Game, released November twenty first two thousand one. Very very close to a very significant date. The that relates to the subject matter of Spy Game, I would say. Oh, no, I'm a little yeah. surprised it was not pushed uh, yeah, this, at all. This, surprised this wasn't a summer of 2002 release. Yes, I would say I would say the same. Um, Hannibal is, get this, both movies uh, after last week's episode have changed 
streaming providers. Both Hannibal and Spy Game are currently on the people streaming service, Tubi. Yes. yes, there are commercials, but yes, they're free. So you can catch up with them that way, or you can make the grave error that I made on both films, and you can rent them from Amazon.com. and uh, <laughs> Or you can watch them on Blu-ray. I know Hannibal just actually got a 4K from Kino. If you really want to um, see those, see Hannibal in the way yeah. it was meant to be, in the way it was meant to be seen. <laughs> see that um, Mason Verger's uh, face in brilliant 4K. Brilliant 4K. God bless Gary Oldman for understanding <laughs> the movie he was in. I think <laughs> he actually seemed to be having the most fun. I kind of enjoyed his character, and uh, it's so funny because when I was a kid. Uh, I remember like seeing like stills of that face and being kind of like, oh, scary, uh, too much. But then like watching this movie, not that scary at all. It's kind of yeah. he's fun. He's like a fun. He's like he's like the crypt keeper's cousin or something. It's he's, great. He's fun for a deeply unfun. <laughs> yeah, he's basically doing like a crypt keeper type yeah. performance in this one. Yeah, for being a horrible character, his character is evil, but he's having a he's having a hammy time. He's a ham. He's a total ham. We're gonna start with Hannibal. Uh, based on release date, I was surprised that these ha- actually came, these actually came out the same year. And interestingly enough, um, two weeks from now we'll be covering Ridley Scott's Black Hawk Down, and that came out in two thousand one as well. And we'll kind of get back to that then. But goes to show Ridley is absolutely like he's entering his sixties mm. at this point uh, in his life, and he seems to have found with Gladiator a complete second wind or third wind or whatever wind Ridley is <laughs> on at this point. He's definitely on a new wind though. I think that that's, I would say undisputable. Uh, so on the set of gladiator, as we kind of mentioned in our gladiator episode, he, um, the sword and sandal genre, mm-hmm. the movie star stature of Russell Crowe. Um, we're not guarantees. At the box office and it was a big swing this movie it was a big because they hadn't done this genre in a while we got a new hot fresh star and that kind of thing but i think um so ridley scott was already kind of had his eye out to shore up his status as an a-list director right meanwhile mega producer dino de Laurentiis. Ooh. you know you've seen you've seen his name in credits before in your life he is still smarting about the fact that after michael man we're going to go back in time a little bit after michael mann was the first person to make a hannibal lecter movie with manhunter based on thomas harris's novel red dragon manhunter while well received by the critics was a financial and box office flop dino owned the hannibal lecter story rights and was like, yeah, I didn't make any money. Maybe nobody cares about this character. So when the sequel came out to Red Dragon, the novel Silence of the Lambs, he let producer-director Jonathan Demme take on the rights to the Hannibal character and did not. He was like, fine, nobody, nobody really cares. It was an error in judgment on Dino's part because, of course, Sansa Lambs went on to be a 
sensation sleeper mm -hmm. hit and to this day the last movie to sweep the major categories at the academy awards it won picture director actor actress and screenplay which it, it is was quite, like... a, quite a quite a thing well, and it's like not only that, it's like a genre movie. It was like released mm -hmm. in like February or something really yeah. early in the year. Like so many things going against it. And it's just, yeah, it's a testament to how much yeah. that film resonated with audiences at the time. And it continued to build and build and build. And there was obviously there was a because they knew it was as part of a series. There was a real anticipation for novelist Thomas Harris to put out a another a chapter in this Hannibal saga and Dino, Dino De Laurentiis was absolutely positively not going to let this slip away once again. Oh my and, God. And he was willing to at the simultaneously um, work with Jonathan Demme and bring back the entire team. Cause they knew boy, that's money in the bank mm -hmm. on this one. Um, cut to the release of the 1999 release of the novel the titularly titled Hannibal huge massive I bought it in its initial print run yeah. um, out of excitement guess who also never read it this guy <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I don't yeah. know why like it just kind of I got it I think I got it for Christmas even and just didn't end up picking it up that may have may have actually been the wise decision um the dino de laurentis got the rights to it um and basically paid apparently um upwards to 10 million dollars to thomas harris to God damn because so convinced that this is a um Absolute sensation. This is going to be a blockbuster. They're going to have a $100 million blockbuster adaptation. Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins coming back for their Academy Award winning portrayals of Clarice Starling and the serial, the notorious serial killer Hannibal Lecter. Jonathan Demme coming back as producer-director with a record salary, too. They all got copies of the book mm -hmm. early. And that's when um, issues started to. Jonathan Demme almost immediately said no after reading mm. the book. He found the book too lurid. And the choice, and we'll kind of get to the big choice in the book, which is to turn it into a love story between Clary Starling and Hannibal Lecter. Way out of left field. And um, out of character. Yeah. And, you know, we, we get to the chase right here. I mean, like, let's tear the bandaid. He's right. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> he was right. Jonathan Demi was a very astute, like, study of people. You know, mm -hmm. if you watch any of his movies, even Sons of the Lambs, which is, this, you know, a pretty hardcore genre movie. Um, the reason, one of the, re one of the big reasons why it's work is his humanity his understanding of the human condition. Like he likes people. He is, you could, he's a warm director, even in making a movie like Sansa Lambs. Yeah. And he gets it. He's and, empathetic. Yeah. He's incredibly. And, um, 
apparently Jonathan Demi said um, Tom Harris is unpredictable as ever took Clarice and Dr. Lecter's relationship in a direction that just didn't compute for me. And Clarice is drugged up and she's eating brains with him. And I just thought, I can't do this. Um, Dino De Laurentiis responded by um, saying, when the Pope dies, we created a good a new Pope. Good luck to Jonathan Demi. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he, and he later said that Demi felt he just couldn't make a movie as good as Sansa Lamps, like a sequel. I think I think Jonathan Demi felt he didn't need it. I think Jonathan Demi was an artist. And I know I'm looking at this as a like through very rose-colored glasses of being a man who person who really respects. Mm -hmm. You can go back to our Ricky in the Flash episode to hear me talk about how much I like Jonathan Demi. But I think he was right. So moving on to another director, first on Dino's list, who seemed to be first on a lot of lists all the time, is our is our friend Ridley Scott. Mm -hmm. Rid he visited Dino visited Ridley on the set of Gladiator, who suggested he direct Hannibal. D Ridley's initial response was, I'm already making this movie. Why do I want to make a movie about a general crossing mountains with elephants? Uh, he, uh, there we go. Mm, there you go. That the, you the, go. the uh, insight to Ridley Scott's mind. <laughs> yeah, some, some, some classic Carthage Carth bits. Yeah, yeah. Um, and his quote is, Dino. I'm doing a Roman epic right now. I don't want to do elephants coming over the Alps next, old boy. <laughs> that sounds about right too. <laughs> I mean, I will say, wouldn't mind that movie. Yeah, Come I on. know. Well, you know it's way more up Ridley Scott because, like, Ridley Scott could pull that off. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. That's like, yeah, that's totally in his field of work as a wheelhouse. Yeah, make it mm -hmm. happen. Uh, Apple Plus or whoever funds movies nowadays. Yeah, well, uh, the the Dr Pepper Company. Whatever. We could talk about. We could talk about the big Ridley. Why don't we talk about the big Ridley news? Then we'll get back to him reading the manuscript. The big Ridley news is that Gladiator Two is happening. Ooh. A person by the name of Paul Mescal has been cast. <laughs> Is the Lucius, the son of uh, Connie Nielsen's character, which I anticipated would be kind of the way they would take this story. Mm -hmm. um, we don't know anything else about it, but he apparently beat out Timothy Chalamet and Elvis for the role. Yeah, those two. Oh God, everyone among others, but it's the yeah. same as we've said before on the show. There are seven guys in yep. Hollywood. They just kind of rotate who those seven guys are. Yeah, and, and Paul's trying to get, become one of them. This is like his big. This uh, is his. This is his. Uh, this is a strong opportunity for Paul to become one of the seven guys. Yeah, he has to kick out. I think like you have to like eat the eyes of one of the other guys, like the weakest guy. Yeah, like he's yeah. got to like, you know, stab, he he's got to stab Channing Tatum in the head or something like that. <laughs> he has to beat Chris Pratt in Mortal Kombat. Yeah, one of the one of the Chris's must die for a Paul to rise. <laughs> Chris 2, Rise of the Pulse. I mean, I think it's like, I think it's really neat, and I think is Ridley Scott heads into the second half of his 80s, which is astonishing that he's launching these, like, these this scale of things mm -hmm. at this age. I think that, I mean, we, heaven forbid, we want him to live to like 120 years old. Yeah! Get, it, get him the uh, whale goo. When we are at this stage of, yeah, get him to have him talk to one an Australian poacher to give him a hand. <laughs> but he, as each of these movies kind of like, you don't want it, but kind of, you know, 
life is life could be a last picture. Mm -hmm. These are like, I think do think Napoleon gladiator too. He's like kind of like writing the last, like the unfinished business movies in a mm, sense. But that's interesting. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, because like I feel like Napoleon, I, he's said that he's been percolating about that world since the Duelists. Like yeah. that's definitely been on his mind, and I think Gladiator Two is like it feels like some. Uh, there's a sense of finality to that. Like there's been a sequel percolating for about that film for a while, and that's something he'd like to. Do. I, I feel like he also has one more Alien film in him. Yeah, I think that that would be kind of, um, or like a third Blade Runner sequel. Something like Ooh. that, I think, yeah. would be kind of the... But in the, in the same vein, we've talked about like Scorsese with Silence and Irishman kind of closing the chapter mm -hmm. on his religious epics and his gangster movies mm -hmm. in kind of a pretty definitive way in both movies, I would say. Oh, for sure. Well, an Irishman is like... It's like both of those. what It is such a... Yeah, because it is also, I feel like there's like a profound religious, especially like the yeah. last half hour of that film, for sure. And so I think like Scorsese's almost gone on the other side of it. He's like playing with house money. Mm -hmm. It's like we used to talk about this with like uh, musicians. So like Bob Dylan is the key, in my opinion, the key popular artist of the right. 20th century. Mm -hmm. And I know that's hyperbole, but. Yeah, I mean, that's not dangerous that's... minds. I understand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, he almost died. He released this t right before he released this Time Out of Mind album about 20 years ago. Oh, my he God. Had a hard, he hit a hard issue. And Time Out of Mind feels like this, like, death album. Mm. And a lot of musicians put out, like, the aging ones put out these, like, death albums or, like, oh, my God, my friends are dying albums. Like, Springsteen's Letter to You a couple years ago was his version of that. And mm. but then Dylan lived. And he's put out like 25 years worth of other stuff. And Dylan has been playing with house money ever since. And like that, like narrative ended with time out of mind. And since he's like put out like all these like standards covers albums and Christmas albums. And he like seems to be like living in the 1930s <laughs> at this point. And it's wild because I just read his new book and he's, yeah, again, he's like talking about how America used to be, but it's like even before he was born. Wow. He's like Robert it, Crubb now. He's like, yeah, yeah. yeah it's Man, like that's he, interesting. Yeah, he's become like a time traveler because he maybe should have died. <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah. weird. These are weird theories. I, you know, but it's no, like, but that's, I like the idea of like, because like what you're positing too, like if these are kind of like his, like, you know, if these, if Gladiator Two is ostensibly and Napoleon are ostensibly Scott's, uh, you know, uh, finishing the chapter, like if I die, this is a great period. Then, uh, you know, knock on wood. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Uh, but it doesn't uh, even have to have to happen when you're old, because I think somebody like even going to Noah Baumbach, like Marriage Story, felt like his final finale, final statement on the erudite New Yorker artist who's neurotic. <laughs> like light comedy, light drama story. Right. As furthest he could push that thing. So what does he do? He doesn't even know. So he does yeah. like this a cra like a absolutely crazed postmodern epic. Yes, his follow-up movie that nobody knows what to do with. Yeah, it is like a it's it's a 
I, I'm so curious to see what Ridley Scott, because like Ridley Scott kind of comes off as someone who always has a plan. Mm-hmm. He always feels very prepared. He always feels very methodical. So like I, the the idea of like a an unmoored Ridley Scott is very intriguing to me. I really like the idea of just him being like, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's make a movie about you know, you know, is it gonna would it just be more stuff like a good year? Or would it be just like him I, hanging I, out with his yeah? I think we're also maybe overrating uh, outside of Bob Dylan who seems to be perhaps the most powerful like no one tells me what to do artist going i think most other artists are kind of moored in by commercial and outside forces oh for sure who's to say yeah that's the thing like at the end of the day like there's maybe like a hundred or uh Artists in general, maybe like twenty directors at any given time, can kind of like have these like plush projects. Yeah, um, and I think we're like we're narrativizing something that is a lot more mechanical and difficult to narrativize. Yeah, than like like I mean, this yeah. is like Tarantino's entire thing is he's trying to control this narrative because he's like looking at it from both like guys like our perspective of like a fan who's looking at history and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And also a complete and utter insider who's trying to control it. He's trying to control the fan narrative from the inside, which no one, no one else does. And, yeah. Cause... And it's kind of making him look like a control freak <laughs> in a way. But that's the only way if you're going to achieve what you want to do, you exactly. have to be that way. That's the yeah. problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he's going to do it. I think, though, he's petrified what that because I think with his case, if you want to be a fan and do the narrative, he actually finished the job with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm. He probably shouldn't make the 10th movie. If he wants to finish his the movie mad guy, movie mad nerd who won and got to do this entire oeuvre out of it. There is no perfect ending. No, no more perfect ending than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's true. I, yeah, because I'm tr- I'm struggling to see what you, I guess. Like, it's like, yeah, would he do like his own take on Babylon? Would that be like the, the next I, well, step? I, I don't I, know. I think, and I, he won't do it. But and I don't know if it's even the smart move at this point. But I think his the move would be to make his version of the Fablements. Would be Ooh. that would that would be and make it at two hours. Try and yeah. get it like try and make it under a two hour movie and just a very simple movie of him as a child. That would get Samuel Jackson his Oscar. Yeah, it's like a stepdad character or something. Yeah, like the, that. The, I think yeah. like yeah, because he has that like one friend in his life that he's always like uh Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, it's like in the book it's this guy Floyd, who Sam Jackson could probably play. He's a little old, but he probably could do it. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Okay, maybe not Sam Jackson unless yeah, unless you want to pull out the but I think uh, you could find a way to get him in there. For a couple, yeah. scenes, but I don't think he's that sentimental. That's it. that's that's that that would be the flip side to Tarantino. I don't think he's a sentimental person. That's interesting. Based on completely, yeah. Quentin, if you're listening, I don't know you, but based on your yeah. art and inter- yeah. interviews, well, yeah. the way you talk. I mean, yeah, and I think like you can be sentimental in one way and sentimental in another way, and we're talking about sentimental in like the filmic sense, and like yeah, the, like you know, he doesn't bring that to his movies necessarily. All the he time. would not kill as many leading characters as he has killed if he was, yeah, really exactly. sentimental. Oh <laughs> uh, man, so now I want to see like a fab- I want to see uh, a Fableman's movie with a body count. Like, yeah, 
<laughs> that would be his. That, yeah, have that, chimp, yeah, that would be have, neat. That would be neat. Yeah, have that chimp blow up. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I think I think it's just you you paint yourself into a corner when you try and narrativeize things that much. I think like somebody like Bob Dylan, who is so unmoored to any of that stuff, that mm-hmm. anytime he releases something, it's like, the fuck is this even gonna be? <laughs> I mean, that's why he's fascinating, because he's, like, one of the few people in the world that seems to have, like, autonomy. Yeah. Which is, like, I think everyone... I think that's why we are drawn to, like, a lot of these artists. Well, like, I mean, that's James Cameron, too. Mm -hmm. Like, James Cameron has complete autonomy. Yeah. As well. Yeah, and and, although, like, yeah, and I think that, like, yeah, it's very easy to trick yourself into thinking that, like, yeah, like... He's like, oh yeah, you. I think you might be right. I don't even think Ridley Scott. Like, it's like, here's the thing: if Ridley Scott had complete autonomy, he probably wouldn't have fucking directed Hannibal. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> he wouldn't. He would not have been looking for a gimme hit after Gladiator. Yeah, that's he, yeah. He, out of nervousness, that Gladiator was not going to be the sensation it was. Yeah, you got to remember that's a that's a good good lesson to learn. Yeah, for sure. And but, but this is how Ridley Scott has stayed in the game. Mm-hmm. Like if Noel Baumbach was looking to like not be thrown into director jail, which I think he may have been. Although he may have uh hedged his bets by co-writing the Barbie movie. Too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, it's so funny because like he does have like uh like he has the Barbie movie and then he has Madagascar three. And I think he wrote Madagascar three because of like a divorce. I have a feeling yeah. I think I, that but was I his... would tell you like I think Alejandro and Iritu is gonna make a movie like The Revenant next. I Yeah. I probably. guess that. I would guess he would because, you know, otherwise he's in director jail. Yeah. Oh, God. Although Bardo is so good. It is hashtag, like a... hashtag Bardo Boys. You'll hear more about it soon. Bardo Boys <laughs> for life, brother. Bardo Boys for life. So, really, Scott has received the manuscript for um, Hannibal by Thomas Harris. <laughs> Thomas Harris is a really interesting guy. He's like a recluse, he doesn't do any interviews. And yet he all he does is write like a novel every 10 years about the serial killer. Mm. It's he's a very interesting guy. Um, really said, I haven't read a manuscript so fast since the Godfather book. It was rich in all kinds of ways. Rich might be. I think Ridley might be selling us a <laughs> might be making the sale job right there. Um, yeah. oh, oh, Ridley. But he had reservations about the ending. He said, I couldn't quite take the quantum leap emotionally on behalf of starling uh he thought he understood it from hannibal's point of view he did get that but um he just didn't see it with starling so um but he felt his entire point of view on it was like this is a vampire movie this is one of these romantic vampire dracula type movies (laughs) so interesting um they yeah, a... they had to sit Thomas Harris down though for apparently quite a tense meeting to tell him they were going to change the ending and essentially mm-hmm. not have Clarice and Hannibal utterly and completely like fall in love and like I think run away together and <laughs> they tried their best we'll get to it in a moment here so the first writer in so Ted Talley who Adapted Sons of the Lambs, won an Oscar for it, declined to write Hannibal. And he, no had problem, he had problems, quote, with the novel's excesses. Uh, 
this is an interesting thing to have. You don't usually see this, and I don't even these days. I think it would be even more so, like to see like the team that was so successful almost uniformly say no to doing a sequel. It's a very interesting thing that does not happen particularly often. I think that kind of says something. Yeah, they're viewing it's like Hannibal's like a pathogen and they're all like mean white blood cells. Like yeah. it is very like, yeah, they are rejecting this like wholeheartedly, which is like, a, yeah, that's just something you don't see yeah. nowadays. I think yeah. uh, for whatever reason. And I I think that to me, it's actually shows a lot of an artistic integrity mm-hmm. from the Silence of the Lambs team. And yeah. their recognition that what they did with Silence of the Lambs was special and kind of one of a kind. You know, I rewatched Silence going into this app as kind of background, and it's an astonishing movie. It still plays in every single possible way. It's a, just a success on all levels. I it, couldn't, I loved it. I, and I've seen it many times, but I just loved it. Well, and it's like, I think like that's the thing is like, it's not like Ted Talley hasn't done stinkers. Like yeah. it's so funny too because I'm looking at he did Red Dragon because I was gonna say maybe he's like, but I think there's just something about like um, there is something kind of sacrilege about uh, you know, having Clarice and Hannibal couple. It's such a negation of everything else. That's a betray- It's a film. it's a betrayal of character. It's a yeah. true kind of, and it makes no sense. Based on everything that was established and the fact that Clarice, due to Jodie Foster's performance and the way it was written and the way it was directed, we know her. We Mm -hmm. know how she feels. We know what her morality is. We know what her values are based on even in the two hour time we spend with her in the movie that these are real question marks. So Ted Talley said no. So they, of course, I mean, they had money. This was a massive thing. He brought in David Mamet to write the first draft of the script. Oh my god! And, I mean, like, talk about a heavy hitter, and they all—they um, all thought his version stunk. Uh-huh. They did not really like it. <laughs> and uh, what the head of Universal was like, we had 15 pages of notes, and we needed to work with him on a day-to-day level. And yeah, David Mamet does not have time for that um there's a website called scriptwritersutopia.com that called david mammoth's draft stunningly bad interesting um, he took so the, more he took took cash. The, yeah and then he went to broadway to have to cast william h macy or joe montagna as some asshole like, yeah exactly <laughs> 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 he's like hanging out with fucking uh uh Campbell Scott somewhere shitting yeah, out the screenplay. Shitting out some screenplay about some jerk who's being who's really, really mean to a woman or their lesser coworker. <laughs> yeah, maybe the positive. Yeah, he's making a screenplay that positive. What if Harvey Weinstein was actually a little misunderstood? Yeah. Oh, David. Oh, David, David, you've lost your way, brother. Oh, oh boy. Oh, maybe he never had a way. Okay, moving on. Who knows? On. He's a very interesting guy. I've, I like his I like yeah. you know. I like good. his plays. Yeah, the earlier, good, good the writer. Earlier ones. Yeah. yeah, good, good writer. writer. <laughs> yeah. So they brought in um, Stephen Zalian, uh, who wrote um, Schindler's List, Kings of New York, uh, 
Awakenings, Searching for Bobby Fischer, Heavy Hitter. Went yeah, on to do th- went on to do things like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Moneyball and yeah. Oh, and uh, Irishman. So uh, Heavy Hitter, one of the yeah. best, one of the best <laughs> in the game. And uh, he initially declined to write it, saying he was too busy, and you can know never win doing a sequel. Smart guy. Um, changed his mind though, <laughs> and because Dino bugged him. And frankly, probably brought like a Brinks truck with the cash up to Steve's house. <laughs> just a cartoon, like he just like, oh gave him a Scrooge McDuck vault, basically. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I guess David Mamet's script initially thought that um, the love story was like more of an assault rather than a true love story. Uh, Which, I mean, I guess that reads more. Uh, I don't know. There's I, a lot of good smart writers trying to wrap their head around a good smart writer making a really weird, utterly out of character choice that is now kind of like scripture within the minds of like fans of this series, uh, and trying to make it in any way, sense, or form um, make sense. Yeah, it it is just a. It is a conundrum. It is like, and I, and I and I'm curious. Like, our fans are like our diehard Thomas Harris heads. My guess is uh, that people didn't like it. I don't yeah. think it was reviewed well. I I don't think it was like. I think it was like. It's weird. It doesn't make sense. We, no, we, we're yeah, gonna say yeah. that. I mean, we, we were talking more. about giving ourselves notes about repeating ourselves on these episodes and. But how can we not repeat ourselves with that? No, that's like the end of the at the end of the day. That's like the story here. It doesn't make it's fucking ludicrous. sense. No, it's, it's 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 confusing. It's just a baffling choice to make. I don't know. It is, and, yeah. But Steve Zellian is like a pro's pro mm-hmm. and you know, got to work on doing this. So and they had to do it. This movie's happening. Like, no question. And and really, of course, signed on after he read the book and kind of got into it because I think he was interested in, like we said, this opera vampire story. And then I think he also was interested in the idea of like having a hit. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we're still Gladiator was no sure thing. And then we talked about it in the previous ones. I mean, G.I. Jane, White Squall, down the line. The 90s were not awesome. Awesome. Here's another interesting side piece. Hmm. Do you know what Thelma and Louise lost Best Picture to? And who Ridley Scott lost Best Director to? Who? I'm confused. I don't know. Jonathan Demme and Silence of the Lambs. Oh my god. (laughs) So is there a competitive aspect here? Is there a gotcha aspect to all of this? Maybe even subconsciously? Maybe. Yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, and I wouldn't put it past really to be a little competitive, a little bit like, I'll show you, I'll make a better Hannibal. Movie. He is, he is like a, just, you know, we've already, we've talked about this, uh, repeating ourselves again, but like, we've talked about on the show how like, he'll just say his movies are like the best, like, what was it, like, 1492, he was like bragging about um, yeah. uh, Mark Maron? Yeah, it was, yeah, or any of them. He any of them. All, he thinks they're all awesome. Every yeah, one he's a big... Yeah. yeah, which is good. You gotta have that mentality at that level too, or else you're not gonna like be able to make anything almost. 
So um, that brings us to casting. Um, both Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins won Academy Awards for Silence mm. of the Lambs. They both expressed interest. Um, and they um, they kind of weighed their options on, and they definitely knew that Anthony Hopkins was kind of the, I think you can argue in a different direction, but um, not a different direction, but a direction that both were indispensable, but they felt that Anthony Hopkins was truly indispensable as Hannibal. So despite reservations about the, the story itself, they offered Anthony Hopkins $11 million in a t name over the title lead role and a trip to Italy to do it all. So our boy Tony made the smart call and said yes. Despite artistic integrity is one thing, $11 million and a vacation to Italy and a superstar status is a whole another thing. He gets and to have it. I, and he's I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. He, the guy put in the work, man. He put in the work on the boards, as they say in the theater community. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's like, he's already like, this won't affect his like, his, his, because like, you know, it's, I feel like his hateable performance is so huge and towering in the previous film that this is one of those rare moments where like a bad performance won't like like I don't think I don't view Hannibal necessarily as like a stain on Hopkins. Mm -hmm. No, I don't even though I don't, he's I think he comes out of it the least scathed. I would say. Yes. Yeah. Um so meanwhile on Jodie Foster's side of things there was kind of um some back and forth. And then when the book came out she was a little conf she felt it was a betrayal of the original character right. she's right yeah. to reiterate that again and she really made a connection with Jonathan Demi too mm -hmm. and the second Jonathan Demi was out also let her you know actors need to feel safe and protected and Jonathan Demi was an actor's director on top of, you know, and everyone who ever worked with him had nothing but kind things to say about him as a director. And, um, I think she felt that there with the betrayal of character and going into a cold environment where it could get more betrayed and change. And the character clearly, I mean, she won an Academy Award. It was a massive, like it was a big part of her. Mm -hmm. So she claimed that she was going to direct a movie and um, bowed out of playing Clarice Starling, which is, uh, and, you know, she said, um, the official reason I didn't do Hannibal was I was doing another movie. So I could say in a nice dignified way that I wasn't available when the movie was being shot. But Clarice meant so much to Jonathan and I, she really did. And I know it sounds strange to say, but there was no way either of us could really trample on her. Right. That was that. So we now have a role that is perhaps the hottest role for actresses in Hollywood of a certain age who can fit. Yeah. It's like, it's like a James Bond-esque level role. Absolutely. So they took a look at Kate Blanchett. They took a look at Angelina Jolie. They took a look at Gillian Anderson. They took a look at Hilary Swank, Ashley Judd. Helen Hunt from As Good As It Gets. 
Ooh. She already dealt with Psycho and Melvin or whatever the hell his name yeah, was. Yeah, I mean, that guy's kind of like, I, 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 who would I rather hang out with, Hannibal or Melvin? That's tough. Yeah. That's a tough one. That's a coin toss. Yeah. <laughs> so, but they fell on um, the and of course, Julianne Moore. Uh, Anthony Hopkins asked his agent if he had any um, sway over casting. He had worked with Julianne Moore on a previous movie called Surviving Picasso and thought her as a um terrific actress and yep. recommended her and she is obviously yeah she's great she's, yeah yeah yeah, duh, yeah we don't have to duh, we don't even have to yeah, say it yeah no no don't need to praise you know we people know yeah. um and uh hopkins did not have any contractual influence on casting but uh really scott did think um would be worthwhile to ask anthony hopkins like what he felt about it and um Scott said he was really surprised that he had ever all the top people wanting it. And that's a understatement, Ridley. Come on. Did he know anything about any of this before he read the Hannibal book? Do you think he ever saw any? Like, you know, it's like it feels like he's like coming into this like a like a baby. He's like, oh, wow. Like, there's more of these books. I just thought it was this one. You know, uh, there's more movies. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Very cool. And so. um and uh, Anthony Hopkins did have some influence on Ridley Scott, and Ridley Scott was a fan. He liked, you know, he felt she was an incredibly versatile actor, and she moved quickly to the top of the list. And so Julianne Moore was cast as the new Clarice Starling. Mm. Um, the third part of this group is that the essential story of Hannibal is that we're a few years after the events of Silence of the Lambs, Clarice Starling is a seasoned more hardened FBI agent at this point. Movie opens with a Black Rain-esque action sequence. Oh my god. Very confusing. Already off off the rails. It definitely feels like Ridley's like, we need a set piece Mm -hmm. to start this movie off, but it doesn't really matter, and it involves this shootout, and Clarice is kind of put on the shit list at at the FBI because of... She shoots a baby! She almost shoots a baby! It's crazy! But at the same time, the person who in one arm is holding a baby is also holding like an uzi i guess it's like such a weird i i think like just that whole everything about that feels so like forced and weird it's like it's like technically strong but at the same time there is this element that already puts you on like do you know what you're doing here like do you know what like does anyone have any clue about why you're making this movie or any like level of tone or theme or anything like that so it sounds lambs from the first frame of the movie. Jonathan Demi has the tone and rhythm down. Like it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And I think that's what you need as a filmmaker, like the best movies get it all the way through. Yeah. Well, like, and it's a- like alien yeah. gets it all the way through in terms yeah. of like tone and style and movement and rhythm. Duelist gets it all the way through. Like Ridley can, can can uh, hit tone with uh properly he can do the but with this movie yeah it starts off like an action film it's very it's, it's, kinda, it's just it's out, confu- of, it's out it's of place it's kind of confusing so really yeah. she's on the shit list but then we find out there's this guy out there who is hunting Hannibal Lecter and because Clarice is in a vulnerable state in her career and life feels he can kind of bring her into the fold to help out with the hunt for Hannibal. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, Mason Verger, one of Hannibal's only surviving victims. Um, Mason Verger is, of course, quite sympathetic. He's a child rapist. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, oh, wow. I'm evil. Sorry. Yeah. 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 No, evil. Like, it, again, that's another step in the. What the fuck am I supposed to feel about this movie? It's, oh, it's, it's true. like, like th- this guy. This is our other guy. None of these characters are like. You don't want to hang out with any of them. You don't want to like. They're either kind of boring or they're just Gross. like odious. They're yeah. odious. Yeah, and it's like, it's just, it's just, it's just labored too. It's very like. Um, like I, I get, I feel like everything feels so like forced and stodgy. Like they have, there's like the, that one like thing where like they have like where Julianne Moore and uh, Mason Verger they have like a Clarissa and Verger they have like that conversation about God and she's and he's like you know you didn't look away from my visage, uh, but uh, when I mentioned God you, you you turned away and it's just it's so just like fuck off this sucks I'm. But on top of that, I guess we'll get to our review shortly here, but it's like, it's dramatically inert. Who gives a shit? Yes! Yes! Who cares? I don't care about this weird man! Get him away from me! He sucks! So, like, what made Manhunter and Silence of the Lambs so good is, so, you have this serial killer, this creepy-ass serial killer who needs to be utilized to solve... Uh, out go, outstanding serial killing crimes mm-hmm. with a kind of go-between protagonist FBI agent who are both like Will Graham and Clary Starling are super interesting. Will Graham is like the hardened, maybe he's like lost it character, which is a great character. And Clary Starling is the rookie. We don't know, like who, who might be in over her head. She has everything to lose. Yeah, and what they are trying to do is stop a monster from killing innocents. In this one, there are no innocents. It doesn't matter. We're trying to stop a, a gross child killer or child molester from killing a cannibal serial killer. <laughs> Morally, who gives a shit? They should both rot. Yes, they both suck. And it's funny because, like, I think I said earlier that, like, Gary Oldman at least seems to be having fun with it. He's, like, being kind of, like, weird and, like, oh, hello. Yeah, like, he has, like, he, has, like, he, a good... he, like, he understands this is, like, such a seedy, gross concept. So I'm going to lean in. Yeah. On being seedy and gross. But, like, even with that, like, it just, like, you, yeah, it, it is like a movie you feel uniquely dirty watching. It is just, it and it's is, like, but it's also boring. Yeah, well, and here's the thing: I think that what makes me so angry about this movie, like, yeah, you did. I, 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 I told Don I may hate this movie more than Free Guy. That's not like a. Those are strong, um, not strong words. I, I told Jen I was like, I think Patrick thinks it's the worst movie we've watched on the podcast, and she goes, "Worse than Geely." And I was like, mm, "Well, there you go. Never mind." No. And I, dude, I think I would. I can't believe I'm saying this. I think I would rather watch Geely because Geely, at the very least, put that yeah, in sorry. the um the bio for this episode. Bio. Patrick would rather watch Geely 
yeah, this is an episode. It, this is an episode about Hannibal. <laughs> yeah, because like it's just like at least with like Geely, it's like it was this big fuck up, but it, at least like Martin Brest is like putting something from himself out there. There's like there's an attempt at something. I don't know. Like this movie just. I think it's just like there's so much like that. This movie could have been. There's Rather so much talent Ridley, involved. Ridley, Ridley Scott and Anthony Hopkins trying to justify their paychecks. Yes! Flailing! Flailing to just flailing. like, oh man, yeah. And, so, ugh. get this though. So, Mason Verger is the surviving victim of Hannibal Lecter. He is a quadriplegic who has completely been disfigured to the point where we mentioned Gary Oldman plays the role. He's unrecognizable. Yeah. And to a testament to Gary Oldman as being like such a heavy hitter as an actor. Like, he is like unrecognizable it's incredible he's uncredited too really yeah in the credits and the billing um he claims it was because he wanted to do it anonymously and be kind of scary in that regard Uh, which is a neat thing to say the rumor is though that he wanted billing with julianne moore and anthony hopkins above the credits on the poster and that wasn't allowed and that's the reason why he's um, doing it anonymously uh, <laughs> also probably because he's embarrassed I um, I buy all of those reasons but get this, this is crazy they offered the role to Christopher Reeve and whoa it, it, without any level of thought or consideration one could say in a room Oh, that would be interesting. He kind of, like, has lived it. Yeah, no, that would actually... You know what? That is actually cool to cast a... Um, I mean, it's not cool. This character sucks. I would feel <laughs> yeah. really fucking bad. Yeah, I can't even say that with a straight face. It sucks. So, no, I'm, not, having dodged... re- not having read the novel, but being in position, he, the health he was in and so forth, yeah. Reeve was like, oh, cool. Like, that's a big budget move, like a big deal movie. And then he heard he was playing a quadriplegic, facially disfigured child rapist, and he declined. Yeah, imagine being Christopher Reeve. You're... Which kind of he... goes against his brand. A smidge. Yeah, no, a smidge. Like, <laughs> no, but it's such an insult. It's so... To be like, hey, you know, hey, we have a character. uh, We never do this. Does that kind of sum up the bad taste of this entire endeavor from novel to completion? Yes. I think it does. Yeah, it kind of sums it up. I want to like, there used to be this guy who was on YouTube and his whole YouTube channel was uh, finding copies of Shaq Fu, like the bad... The SNL game. game, yeah, the video game, and he would like, uh, he would like destroy them. He was like, his his goal, his his quest in life, his modus operandi as a human was to find copies of Shaq Fu and destroy them. I want to do that with DVD, yeah, just destroy them. Yeah, I want to do that with DVDs of Hannibal. <laughs> well, there is like those, like, like I, I, way off topic. I was so fascinated with that art installation, the Jerry Maguire's, they where they obtained like a thousand copies of Jerry Maguire on video and just made like chairs. Out of out of the videos, yeah, they, they were called the Jerry's, and it was the weirdest. Like that that that's a good use of art and time, and yeah. you should do that. You should figure out a way to do that with Hannibal. Yeah, there must Hannibal be a way. Video cassette. Let's talk um, to Jimmy Carter and Habitat for Humanity. Maybe we can use Hannibal Blu-rays as shingling. So, um, other subsequent cast members on the film. I we need to start with. God tier actor, the late great Ray Liotta plays um, Slimeball. 
U.S. Justice Department official Paul Krenler in, in a way that only our boy Ray could have done it. Oh, man. I think he comes out unscathed because he gets to do the really he gets to have the most memorable moment of the movie and he just gets to do Ray Liotta things. It, it is like by by just by sheer luck, he gets to like play the goofiest character. And yeah. as a result, he kind of like the goofy, his goofy wavelength matches the goofiness of this mm. film. And he gets the pass. Uh, the great Italian actor Giancarlo Gianni plays Detective Ronaldo Pazzi. <laughs> Ronaldo Pizza. Ronaldo <laughs> <laughs> Pizza. Or, yeah, or Ronaldo. It is like. Uh, who's, or Pat- uh, who for a spell in this movie is the lead of the movie. Yeah, he is like, it is so interesting that like. You know, some would say it's bold to have like this, you know, uh, middle-aged Italian actor as yeah. your lead of your like, you know, eighty-five million dollar brand. It you brought know, me back. He's obviously in the like Lena Vertmuller movies, and he's a great actor and all that kind of thing. But like for most modern audiences, I think he, most of us remember him from uh, the first Daniel Craig Bond movie, Casino Royale, yeah. where he gives the play-by-play on the Texas Hold'em scene <laughs> that I quote. <laughs> he just went all in. That means he gave all of his chips. This is a big play for Bond. As he's explained to Eva Green how poker works for the audience. It's yeah. <laughs> so every, really every time I see anyone playing poker, I just go, he just went all in. <laughs> like, oh, that's oh, what that means. That's oh, okay. poker. <laughs> Not, like, like, it's so funny. Like, the Bond movie is so good, but it's like such a time capsule that moment when Texas Hold'em was like, inexplicably the most popular thing in america oh yeah no i remember watching like uh the espn the Texas world Holden. series of poker and that kind of thing like uh, oh for, for sure. some reason everyone was playing poker and yeah like became degenerate gamblers for six months <laughs> there was like one year where like phil hellmuth was a household name <laughs> yeah like, they were like stars there was like the yes. lebron james of poker you <laughs> yeah. It's like Chris Moneymaker won that. He just he's never been in stuff before. Yeah, it's like we should put him in like uh, now. You see me too. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Let's get let's get Sammy Farha and Armadillo Slim to 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 be boy to be boy you know to have voice roles in a Cars movie or some shit. (laughs) Um, Francesca Neri plays Pazzi's wife Allegra who is a key linchpin to everything that happens in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Frankie Faison returns as the orderly Barney, who, oh, is, man. who is actually in all of the, outside of Hannibal Rising, he's actually in all of yeah. them. He's the only, because um, even Anthony Hopkins, of course, didn't play Lecter in Manhunter. Um, Brian Cox did. Uh, so he's back. Yeah, uh, he's a good actor. Good. I'm glad he got a paycheck. <laughs> we got John Matheson. Is the cinematographer Pietro Scalia is the editor, and Hans Zimmer, of course, did the score. Bad. All returning, all returning yeah, champions. I'll I'll say this now: it might be my least favorite Hans Zimmer score. He's phoning it in, man. Yeah, it's very, it's very just like yeah, very rote, and then like all the st- the stings are just they take you out of the movie even more than yeah. usual stings. It's just not. Well, fun. there is, again, it's just like Grand Guggenau opera style that they're going for. Ugh. Um, they shot all over the world. This was not a cheap movie, but oh, and they have an opening credit sequence. So David Fincher's opening credit sequence to Seven may have ruined the minds of his fellow directors. 
Yeah, for opening I was, credit sequences. Yeah, <laughs> I was thinking that too. Like watching this movie, it did feel like, oh, Hannibal, like Ridley Scott's trying to do a seven, yeah. and he's not, he's not getting like why seven worked. Like he's not, like you, you can't just do a bunch of gross stuff and call it a seven. This, yeah, this goes to the fan as well. Yeah. Um, this movie was budgeted at eighty-seven million dollars, which is actually seems a little cheaper than I would have guessed for it. Um. And really, Scott shot it in his usual, very um, economic way. Mm-hmm. And I think he, um, you know, in and out, took care of business. So the movie was released on in February of 2001. And was a absolutely like smash it. It made what? Fifty-eight million in its opening weekend, which for a hard R gross movie is really, really good. <laughs> and uh, sure. it was third biggest debut ever as of the year it came out for an opening weekend, behind only the Lost World, Jurassic Park, and Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. God damn! It um it was only surpassed. It had the largest R-rated opening weekend ever until it was overtaken by The Matrix Reloaded later on. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it was an absolute sensation. I was there opening weekend. Mm-hmm. I saw it. I was among that $58 million, my 10 bucks or whatever it cost, which <laughs> uh, yeah. were that. Uh, interestingly enough, I saw it in the exact same movie theater with the exact same crew of guys. As I saw Gladiator the year before. Oh. We were all pumped for Hannibal. You had Hannibal all fever. Ultra pumped. We were like, this movie is going to kick ass. We, and I think everybody felt that way. We were yeah. all like super fucking pumped for this movie. And my memory of the reaction to it was we all walked out and kind of were trying to talk ourselves into it. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah, but I've a hundred percent been there before, where you see like um, a big movie with a group of friends, and your anticipation and you... was like right here for it, and you're just like, yeah, really high. I don't want to admit that that like didn't do it, but so I'm gonna try and like say, oh, that was neat, that was cool, and and uh, dude, I mean that opening weekend, packed giant movie theater, and when that opening sequence started, there were people like screaming and like going nuts, and that's a good feeling. That, oh, that yeah. does get you like that. I've definitely been in it, something. Yeah, I've definitely like had movie going experiences where because the audience was so hyped, like my star rating in my head has gone up like a point. Absolutely. Like, yeah, for sure. And I think, um, and I went back because I convinced myself in the last. I I've kept a about ten year last ten years a um tally of everything I've watched. I have like mm-hmm. a spreadsheet. It's like like 3,000 movies deep or whatever. <laughs> like, it's 10 years worth of, you know, whatever, and I watch a lot, as we said in the last episode. Right. I had, I had convinced myself in the last 10 years I'd seen this movie. Mm-hmm. It's not on, my, not on my list. Wow. So I think I had not seen this movie since that February weekend in 2001. Oh my goodness. Um, Patrick, what what is your experience, previous viewings on this one? Never seen it before. I've oh, seen this was a first. This was a hundred percent a first. Okay. 
I've never seen it before. I saw like I remember seeing like the posters when I was a kid, like all the billboards, and like, mm-hmm. it has that like that creepy kind of like yellowish. Yeah. It almost feels like a um the first time you've we you know you know how like in the mid two thousands all those like French music video directors released like horror remakes like yeah. they did like Texas Chainsaw Jason like all those guys like Alexander yeah has a, yeah it looks like that yeah. Yeah, it had that, like, aesthetic. It was, like, the first time that aesthetic kind of appeared, it felt like. And uh, that was kind of intriguing. But uh, I think it's a combination, too. I think they're trying to play on Nosferatu. Yeah, a little bit. That makes sense. That makes sense. See, play into that a little more. I don't know. Because, like, yeah, but, like, watching, yeah, this is my first time watching it. Had no history with it. I don't think my parents liked it. I feel like my parents saw it and didn't enjoy it. But I could be uh, be mistaken. I think my dad took it off. And he loves Silence of the Lambs. Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, it's just such a, it's a bummer. It's a hard, I don't, yeah, I think it's like one of those things where, like, you know, Dino just had, like, a a boat load of cash, and they had they tried to will this into existence, and I guess they did, but at what cost? I don't know. I, yeah, I think, um, I think Thomas Harris wrote a book that nobody really liked, and no one wanted to admit to it. And then, yeah. um... They were stuck with it, and the first one, Sansa Lambs, and yeah, you know, I think Michael Mann did Michael Mann stuff in Manhunter, which makes it mm. sing. His, you know, his is about like procedure and job and style, and he re- really added like this '80s tone to it. And Will Graham is a very like Michael Mann guy, super mm-hmm. good at his job, but kind of terrible at everything else in his life, and trying to reconcile that. Um, I think Jonathan Demme really got the humanity of Clarice in Silence of the Lambs and master both Demi and Mann had a mastery of tone and style in their movies. I don't think really, really Scott took this as a for hire job. Yeah. Um, and you feel it. <laughs> and I think the only way to argue this movie is what I was mentioning. A friend of mine last night actually is a big fan and was explaining it, I think the only way to argue with this that about this movie is to enjoy it as kind of a sleazy joke. And if you can wrap your mind around that and like remove and if you maybe if you're not like into the high minded nature of Silence of the Lambs or um Manhunter and you want something a little trashier and you find that more enjoyable. Then this would pro- this would be up your alley, maybe. I, I see what you're saying. I your think piece there's... of pulp, rather than going for arts artistic glory. See, I like. I would argue there's pulpier. There's better. There's ways better pulpy to get... stuff. Yeah, there's better ways to get that, and like it never. You're in this like weird halfway point with this film, where like half the time it's just like people sitting down at computers like that's like half of the movie is just like people at computers you know italian guy sadly smoking a cigarette not a lot going on and then half of it is just like really bizarre set pieces that work sometimes but don't work other times i think too um james cameron talked about that has mentioned this as being a really important plot device is like the clock putting everyone on a clock is a really valuable thing so Manhunter and Sons of the Lambs are all about can Will Graham or Clarice Starling stop the Tooth Fairy or Buffalo Bill before they kill again. Mm-hmm. We have gotten to know 
whether it's Joan Allen's character in the blind tiger woman <laughs> manhunter <laughs> or if it's the senator's daughter in sounds of lambs mm-hmm. we got to know them too yeah and whether or not we we really like joe and alan we don't really like the senator's daughter as much but whether we don't want them to die we don't no. want them to become another victim we don't want buffalo bill and the tooth fairy to continue well and this and... one there's nothing there's none yeah. of that whatsoever no like there's no yeah because like even like the senator's daughter like it, you're gonna cheer when she gets the dog. Like that's yeah. a big moment, and it's a cool moment in the movie. And she gets to have a little bit of like autonomy for herself. Yeah, well, yeah. she's showing she's showing her strength. Yes. Yeah. And like the only people that can show strength, like like, do we want to have a moment like that for Hannibal? Do we want to? Well, yeah, here's the no, thing. No, don't. Yeah, and then also at this point, Hannibal is just kind of like a trickster deity. He's like he's so like smart and like perfect and un undefeatable like i feel like they took it to the place you could take it to while still treating it seriously with silence of the lambs like it's truly it's horrifying in that keep keeping him behind bars you keep a yes. super you keep a super villain a true unstoppable super villain you have to keep and that's why it's scary when he has fucking escapes it's yes! horrifying when he escapes in silence of the lambs yeah, and the, the ending is so fucking him just like walking away from the phone super and like, unnerving oh, and he's out there yeah. That's scary enough. But now it's like he's just like, you know, cavorting around at Italian dinner parties well, and making like a, weird quips. It's like also it's, like my entire discomfort with the television series Dexter. Like, it's the same deal. Like, why make this character a protagonist hero? Yeah, it's, oh God. And like, I think like the movie <laughs> thinks it's being like cute and and sometimes when it, like the part where like, there's like a scene in the end of the movie where, Spoil alert, like he feeds a kid like human brain. It's and gross. it just it it's sucks. It's just like and we're supposed to like I think that's supposed to be kind of like a laugh line or something, or like a isn't this guy I don't know, like like the tone of it just is so bad. But and then if just, you go you go back to Sounds of Lambs, it's like he's bad and yeah. terrifying. Buffalo Bill is fucking terrifying and scary, yeah. and he seems stronger than Clarice. So yes. when it gets to that final confrontation, we know Clarice is alone in this like endless lair. His like he's got one of the greatest scariest lairs in oh. movie history. Yeah. And then you know when she has to hunt him and she has to like put together all of her strength, but we're on her side so much. And we want her to get him so badly. It I, I guess it's hard to do. Yeah. Uh, well, like, I, I, like look at all the like smart talented people we mentioned in talking about this movie who are involved it's hard to do yeah it's like the, the guy who wrote schindler's list like jesus christ it is... one of the most celebrated playwrights of his generation yeah the guy who just won the oscar for gladiator and, and tra- 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 it, it's just and, I think anthony hopkins what... gary oldman and julian moore three of the greatest actors ever <laughs> yeah, and I think it's just I think that at the end of the day, that's why I don't I think it's just like there's so much wasted like the amount of wasted talent is so tragic. It is like in maybe it's just an endeavor that should not have been attempted. Mm. Maybe that's like the thing I you can because like I think there's no way if you're working with Hannibal as the uh, the foundation, if you're working with that book, he's not. Well, he's I think this is where Thomas Harris screwed up. He's not a lead character. I think that's no. at the end of the day, that's the that's the biggest issue. 
It's Joker syndrome. Everyone wants the bad, like, it's like everyone liked the bad guy, or it's like fucking Loki or whatever. Like, everyone, there's like this bad guy that everyone likes, and then they confuse liking this fun side character as, you know, you know, meaning that they should have, like, you know, more of it, or better yet, he should be the protagonist, and... But he's only in Sons of the Lambs for, like, something like 20 minutes, I think. He's a spice. That's why. Yeah. And same with Brian Cox and um, Manhunter. I think same he's deal. like less even. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's like yeah, because he gets like two or three scenes. To, but like that's the thing is like you know you don't make a meal that's like all cumin and some pork. Like you don't like. Yeah. But also like the investigation and trying to stop this other killer gives narrative propulsion. And Hannibal is one of the extraordinary movies that is. Um, gross and unseemly and also boring Just, which is yeah. hard to do that's a hard hard combination to accomplish you could, you could make an edit of this movie without like clary starling in it i think that would make sense yeah. like she's yeah. such a non entity Just, and julianne yeah. Moore, i don't think ever really finds grounding unfortunately with like what to do because she's like facing down like a, a version of it like i think you have to like do a like and we don't need to praise this at all. It's not very good, but it was smart. So, like, Heath Ledger plays Joker. Mm-hmm. So Jared Leto gets Joker next. Not to say that he made the right choices, but he knew he had to do, like, a complete left field. Yeah. Like, differing variation on it. Oh, man. One of my one of my more trollish opinions is, like, I kind of like his portrayal. Just because he, he portrays, I think, like, he does the best job of portraying, like, how a Joker would be in real life. An annoying man who sucks. Like, I don't want to <laughs> hang out with... No one would want to hang out with Jared Leto Joker. He sucks. He's so... Well, I think also, that's the uh, compelling thing about Joker character is that... And that's why <laughs> this character might be an anomaly in this, is that... um you can like as an actor try things and people are open-minded to you giving things different like trying it in a different like choice like joaquin phoenix playing him as a sad loser versus jack nicholson playing him a guy who dances to prince and faces paintings (laughs) yeah oh that's a lot of see uh that is really his his joker is really yeah that's the thing it's like there's a lot of there's a lot of ways you can play that character there's a lot we've brought this up before hashtag fun joker Next Joker needs to be fun. Goofball, silly, Goofball, of... fun, fun Joker, King of Clowns. You <laughs> yeah, know? fun, funny Joker. Please yes. bring back the funny Joker. Kevin, Kevin James is the Joker. I think a fat Joker. We're ready for it. America's yeah. ready for a, America's fat, a, bad, ready. a fat Joker. <laughs> America's ready for fat Joker. Come on, uh, guys, let's get this trending. Hannibal. The reviews were mixed. The approval mm-hmm. rating is a forty percent. On Rotten Tomatoes, the critical consensus reads: While superbly acted and stylishly filmed. One of those is correct. Um, Hannibal lacks the character interaction between the two leads, which who made the first movie so engrossing. One, it's not a first movie. Third, it's the third Hannibal movie. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, the, and this is definitely like they were talking about it, like how each Silence of the Lambs or Hannibal movie is like a reboot rather mm-hmm. than a continuation. And I think that that's an appropriate way of to. Think about it. Um, audiences were pretty lukewarm on it. They tried their best. Uh, Ebert gave it 2.5 out of 4, describing it as a carnival geek show elevated in the direction of art. <laughs> Never quite gets there, but it tries with every fiber of its craft to redeem its pulp origins. And we must give it credit 
for the courage of its depravity. That's a good, nice sentence. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> I like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm vibing with Ebert's review. And he said, uh, you know, Kraft, really Scott's craft makes it washable. And he said he praised Gary Oldman, superb joining of skill and diabolical information. Um, said that uh, Hopkins was fascinating every second he was on screen. But in the end, I cannot approve of the movie. Not because of its violence, because it belongs to the Grand Guggenhall tradition, but because the underlying story lacks the fascination of Silence of the Lambs. Way to sum it up for us, Ebert. I think we can move on to Spy Game. <laughs> yep, we're done. We're out of here. Throwing that in the garbage, lighting it on fire. Never think about it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so right. It's going to be one of these movies. Like There was this restaurant I used to go to in Seattle that I live near. Mm-hmm. That my roommate and I would go to every six months because it like had all of the like accoutrement of a place. It was like an Irish pub, but a little bit more elevated food. They had a good beer selection, had that cool dark brown wood and everything like that. But every time we go in, the food was disappointing. The place was kind of empty and the jukebox sucked. Uh... And that's how I kind of will come back to Hannibal every 10 years, I think. Yeah. Maybe Hannah, maybe, maybe it's for me this time, and I'll probably just come out saying, man, the music kind of is lame. Uh, uh, you know what? Uh, here's what I'll say. Like, I, I bet you could have a really fun time watching this with the right crowd. Like, if you had a couple beers in, yeah. there are a bunch of silly lines you can laugh at. Like, yeah, I'll I'll give it that. I'll give it that paltry thing. But anyway, I think our next movie, also from 2001, Spy Game. Action thriller from Tony Scott. Mm-hmm. T- Tony is coming off of a grand success, Enemy of the State, mm-hmm. and kind of redefining this idea of like I'm going to combine the '70s conspiracy thriller with some '90s, early 2000 crowd pleasing techno thriller moves. Tony had fully engaged in that type of like title cards that are computers typing. <laughs> Like <laughs> computers typing out the title of the movie and the actors' names and stuff like that, and like big sweeping helicopter shots of Beirut and things of that nature were like very much up Tony's alley at this point in his career. And so instead of like Ridley, where he's he's also trying to sh- kind of shore up his bets. So I think mm-hmm. he's coming off of Enemy of the State. Like I want to do another movie in this vein. So if Enemy of the State was the conversation turned into a blockbuster Bruckheimer action thriller, Mm -hmm. Spy Game is Sidney Pollack's Three Days of the Condor turned Mm -hmm. into a big budget Bruckheimer-esque action thriller. Including doing the same move he did in Enemy of the State, casting the original actor from that 70s conspiracy thriller into this one in the vein of Robert Redford, who was also in Three Days of the Condor. Spy Game is essentially the story of Robert Redford is master spy Nathan Muir, CIA mm-hmm. spook. This is his last day at the office. Man, he's getting too old for this shit. He's retiring to the Bahamas, probably the same island Jimmy Fox wants to move to in Collateral. <laughs> um, he has seen a lot. Nathan Muir, I texted Patrick, and I think you agreed, is kind of the has the credentials at the same level that General Francis Hummel 
Ed Harris and The Rock has on his side of things. Like, oh yeah, if there was a U.S. dirty international dirty deed or conflict of the last forty or so years, Nathan Muir was a key member. Yeah, which gets to like the subconscious moral conundrum of this entire movie, mm-hmm. which is Robert Redford is at his most charming and movie star suave in this movie Mm -hmm. everything he does is so slick and cool and he's on you you just can't take your eyes off he's He's having a ball he's absolutely magnetic he's a step ahead of everything you love mirror he's great but at the same time if you really think about mirror he is a war criminal he's among the worst people (laughs) like imaginable he has caused so many crimes throughout the world he is Absolutely. Problematic to say the least. Problematic if you really decide to think about it, which is kind of. I don't know if we're doing that as much anymore because we're in baby brain mode of these kind of movies in general. But if you think about pretty much every action movie of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, same deal. Yeah. It's, it's that whole is like, is there, a, can there actually be an anti war movie question? Yeah, I don't know. But hey, it's fun. It's fun. So anyway, during the <laughs> Vietnam War, Nathan was introduced to um, silent but deadly sniper uh, by the name of I have to look it up. This is this might be an issue. Tom I, I, Bishop. I wanted to say Joey Bishop, and I'm like, yeah, oh wait, that's just one of the guys from that's part of the Red right. Pack. Let's do up with Dean Martin and Sammy Davis yeah. Jr. <laughs> and so, Tom Bishop, played by Brad Pitt. He is a sniper. They go on a mission in Vietnam together. Bishop mm-hmm. is awesome and accomplishes it and shows bravery and skill. So Mir takes Bishop under his wing as his mentor, bringing him into the world of spy games. And a great use of Joe Walsh, by the way. Yeah. They end up in um kind of Forrest Gump level cherry picking conflicts that the US was involved in for the next few years. Forrest Gump for war crimes. Forrest Gump for war crimes. Doing deeds, learning tricks, that kind of thing. But as the movie opened, we opened the movie with Tom Bishop on a mission, maybe, in, in China. Mm-hmm. I did not say it like Trump. Not going to do know. it. Um, nice try. Attempt, attempting to know. But it can't, you shouldn't do that. That's bad. Yeah. Um, where he is, it, it's it's kind of cool. They're setting up that he's doing, they're doing vaccines and they're kind of trying to figure something out. But then there's a power outage and we find out he's trying to break a woman out of prison. But mm-hmm. then we discover that he's, cap- he's captured by the Chinese and we're put on a clock. He's going to be executed by the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Then we yeah, learn... What's really quickly? Do you know who is uh, his uh, his uh, uh, fellow uh, uh, Marvel superstar Benedict Wong? Yes, it was (laughs) a young Benedict Wong, baby. Is uh, Brad's friend on this mission? Who knows how he like got all these guys? There's a lot of questions about how easily it is to get a bunch of guys like hardcore operators to do a mission, Mm -hmm. both at the beginning and end of this movie, Mm -hmm. and how Nathan is able to. Like get Black Hawk helicopters and shit. Like, yeah, that part's crazy. That is like an, about even like about two hundred thousand dollars to accomplish the entire thing. Yeah, because like it's I get it. It's nineteen ninety one. It's not like 
But still, even by then, that seems ridiculous. So what we discover, basically, is that Brad has been off the grid. Tom has been off the grid for a while because he and Nathan had a um, moralistic disagreement. Mm -hmm. And it's because Tom has fallen in love with Elizabeth Hadley, played by Catherine McCormick. You might remember her from Braveheart. Mm. And... um, who is um, an activist and working in um, refugee camps in Lebanon. And he falls in love with her and um, in a relationship that you buy about as much as you buy Clarice and Hannibal. (laughs) Yeah, it is like, you know what? This is the one thing I'll say in the defense of all that. Um, At least by it's entertaining. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, for sure. It's a hundred percent like, this like this maybe maybe it's because I I was in the de- like the, the 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 depths with Hannibal that I was saw, felt this film was like comparatively at least a, ple- a, pre- a pleasant su- surprise. I kind of view this movie as like this is Robert Redford's movie. This is like a hundred percent his film, and so I I guess I'm like more willing to like sideline some of the Brad Pitt. Like I'm, I think it's just kid- unique. It's unique in this day and age to see brad pitt in a underwritten secondary role role oh 100 percent. yeah he's such a it's so funny because yeah he is like he's a he's a he's a star he's like one of the many probably was like in the top three biggest stars of all time at that point but uh i i guess i'm just willing to give it a little more of the because it's just yeah, it's mm-hmm. robert redford's movie and i'm more and i'm interested in his story more than brad's anyways yeah. i don't know yeah he's, yeah and uh, like we said i mean it will probably repeat this. Rubber Redford is like transcendently good in this role. It's like a movie mm-hmm. star role made for this dude to like knock it out of the park. So basically, the CIA is willing to because this mission in China was personal. They don't want to screw things up with this trade agreement they have coming up with China. Obviously, things are always on edge with China, no mm-hmm. matter what. A storyline that would not occur in this day and age at all because this movie would not be released in china if um yeah uh, it is it is interesting that like yeah well it's funny too like i wonder like if it's gotten to the point where even this movie doesn't play on tnt as much anymore and and curious because this is a dad movie oh uh, if there ever was one yeah my my dad my dad does like this movie i know i think my parents I think my folks like this film. I don't know. I'll have to give them a. I'll have to give them a jingle. So, um, Mir, who they write so well, they do such a nice job of presenting him. We don't know what his intentions are and what his chess moves are throughout this, mm-hmm. but he's informed by all these CIA suits. Um, Stephen Delane plays deputy director of operations. Chuck Harker, and you could get the writing on the wall that he is the um, fly in the ointment. When it comes to these, he is the bureaucrat who just is not interested in helping Nathan at all. He's a he's a company man. My favorite recent example of this was Josh Lucas in Ford versus Ferrari. The um, a a classic guy in these kind of movies, the guy who is essentially the studio suit trying to stop the director artist from doing their their job. They're better at it. Get out of my fucking way, man. Yeah, Ben Foster and Hustle. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, we you know yeah. this guy. You know this I guy. I love and like. Uh, by the way, this, so, you love this guy in every movie. Yeah, and I, I'm so glad that like John Josh Lucas is like 
Like, I want him to thrive as a character actor. He's yeah. such a fun... They tried to make him, like, a lead. It didn't quite stick, unfortunately. But he was He's... great. He was great yeah. as this slam ball in Ford versus Ferrari, who just did not get Christian Bale and Matt Damon's art and their visionary status. Yes. You have to have this guy standing in the way of your perfect hero. This nerdy-ass suit who just isn't cool enough, just isn't smart enough, just, just isn't a little... skilled enough. Too square. Too square, and it's ultra-fucking-jealous of our cool guy lead. Yeah. They will do anything they can to thwart our cool guy. Yeah. So Delane knocks it out of the park. He's great. Yeah. Oh, he is my favorite. One of my favorite moments in the movie where, like, uh, and it's just like a little minor moment where just they're all about to have lunch and he does like a little dance and goes, gee, yeah. I'm hungry. I love nerd nerd <laughs> shit. You'd never it's see Robert nerdy. Redford I do love that. It. No, no. Yeah, Robert Redford has dignity. This man. No. Robert, Robert Redford's going to stroll in with his cool hair and cool sweater and be like, I'm already four steps ahead of you, bro. Yeah. <laughs> I already had some tuna tartare. Yeah, man. What are you eating for lunch? I already ate. That's yeah. that's Robert Redford's move. <laughs> Damn, he's three steps ahead always. He's already eating lunch, this guy. It's his birthday? How many wives does he have? Like it's all every every bit of business Redford has. And Redford plays it with like he's the most confident guy. He, but the cool thing is he plays him as like this, like, oh, I'm just moving to the Bahamas, man. Whatever. Like, I, you know, it's like this like duttering old like dad kind of guy, but you're like Oh no, he's the best spy in the history of spies. Yeah, he's a super spy. It rules. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's which makes it uncomfortable because you're enjoying him kick ass so much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it's just that's the territory, man. That's, that's the, the territory. territory. I mean, yeah, it's like don't ask too many questions. Like everyone's like, <laughs> like Top Gun too. It's like really like jingoistic and like rah rah like military. Yeah, but Maverick. Wins the heart of Goose's son back. Yeah, and like, <laughs> look, and, and, and the bad guy isn't anyone. It's just throwing uh, out aliens. We don't yeah. fucking know. I know. It's like, do, do you still get goosebumps when like the guy stands up and slowish? He's the fastest man alive. Of course you do. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> we all want to be that fast. That rules. It's competency porn. That's Ooh. that's what this is. Going back to, uh. I think. Um, Christina Wu on our Insider episode. Go back to it. It's a good one. Mention this. It's Michael Mann is the king of competency porn, but Tony Scott, Ridley Scott, the rest of the guys also are very interested in competency porn. Dudes being awesome at what they do. Yeah. It's fun to see. You love to see it. James Cameron gets it. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, being awesome, doing the job, is fun to watch. You, know, yes. you don't like it becomes the office, becomes Steve Carell in the office. Except we've mentioned this before. Guess who's really, really good at sales? Michael Scott. Yes. That's yeah. why they, that's why that's that show lasted so long. That's like that's the difference oh, between the that first... was that was like an improv note we used to get. You can't be a bad doctor. You could be a weird doctor. Who but you can't be a like bad doctor isn't funny or interesting. Yeah. Interesting well, it... doctor is interesting. Like House. Yeah, just a... House is super fucking good at his job. Yes, that's what keeps him around because he's sure. a pill, he's a pill in every other in every other. Yeah, of course, it's yeah. not lupus. <laughs> I'm just imagining a version of Sherlock Holmes where he just sucks. <laughs> like that, Back, that's yeah. not fun. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's a perfect example, though. Patrick Sherlock Holmes <laughs> is like one of the like 
founding fathers of competency porn. Yes. He's extraordinary. He's the world's greatest detective. He's a mess in every other circumstance, but he's the world's greatest detective. And so Nathan Muir is the world's greatest spy. Mm-hmm. And he has to have people trying to thwart him who are not the world's greatest spy. But there's such pleasure to be gathered by watching him kick ass. Like, that is the joy of this entire 126 movies, is watching him be great at his job. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that he, previous examples where he was great at his job, clearly he has so much blood on his hands he could drown in it. Anyway, they're on the clock. Here's another. Go back to that Hannibal thing. They're on the clock. Mm-hmm. Brad Pitt's going to be killed like 8 a.m. tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So they have to figure out what happened to him. And Nathan has to stop the CIA from letting him just go and letting they don't want to fuck with the Chinese. Mm. So they're going to let him die. Nathan, who has shown no sign of sentiment previously, loves Brad like a son. And that's our story, basically, in this yeah. movie. Can Nathan make the moves behind the scenes, behind this fucking CIA's back mm-hmm. to rescue Brad from this Chinese prison and also kind of rescue in turn Brad's girlfriend Elizabeth it's very exciting it's a good time yeah. it's you keep shouting out you're enjoying you know for as underwritten as bit Tom is and kind of watered down as the romance is it doesn't really matter because you want it because you care about Brad Pitt because he's Brad Pitt yeah you get <laughs> it enough, and, and it's like he's a it's almost like it's like taken kind of where like you know Mm-hmm. It's his son. Yeah, it's his family. Yeah, taking his competency porn too. It's like the second he says, "I have a special set of skills." Those Bulgarians have no fucking shot. It oh, doesn't definitely. matter though. It's you like watching it. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. You're just watching this guy. This is just a movie for a dad to save. It's about a dad oh, saving yeah. his son, and like, yeah, that's all you need. You, you don't <laughs> need the any... joke about American Sniper. Was just like, <laughs> like half the success is like, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, from dads, basically, like red yeah. state dads, be like, yeah, I can do that. That's why. Yeah, pretty can... much. That's pretty much me. Yeah. Even though nobody got that that movie's a fucking tragedy, and it's about a guy who's like utterly gutted and shell shocked by it till he's killed by another guy who's shell shocked by it, like a yeah, bad it... guy who's dealing with his sins <laughs> nonstop until he's murdered by another guy dealing with his sins nonstop. Yeah. It is so funny too that like the movie. I feel like the movie does a better job of like humanizing that character than how he was in actual real yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, he's no. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Like Clint, Clint Eastwood did him a couple favors to yeah, say Clint, the least. Clinton Bradley Cooper did him some fucking favors. Because like, yeah, it's like a testament to Bradley Cooper being a great actor and movie star <laughs> that he brings like such a level of like sympathy to that guy. Anyway. Yeah, I guess we're in that territory with Spy Game. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, like, Tony overdirects the shit out of this movie, and apparently Redford was even like, what are you doing with these 18 cameras, man? There is a scene where Brad Pitt is con- confronts Robert Redford about their international misdeeds in mm-hmm. Germany this time around. Tony has got a helicopter. Cir- they're having this, like, intimate conversation on a rooftop. Tony's got a helicopter circling them with about 18 cameras on the rooftop deck as well. And apparently Robert Redford is like, seems like a bit overkill. It is, it is like almost veering <laughs> towards parody at that point. It, it looks, it, but it's like amazing. It, it looks just, cool. Yeah. In essence, it's like Tony trying to 
he's got all these boardroom scenes in this mm-hmm. movie and all these like conversation scenes and it's his attempt to make a visual filmmaking like mm-hmm. and i think like you know it's unf- you know he's never like he did it in crimson tide so why didn't he think he could do it here i don't think this is crimson tide because crimson tide is like so tense and so like yeah and i think it's because gene and denzel are so established like they get their characters like i think this is another thing it's like tom's character is kind of a blank other than being beautiful brad pitt mm. and you know, so you're really like it's all in redford to do it and he does it it makes it entertaining but i don't think it's quite as successful as crimson Tide no it's, that, a, it's a little yeah. more by the book by the numbers yep. it, it's um you know it's an amiable time passer it's yeah. never yeah it's not gonna reach the the highs of oh, crimson tide yeah. three o'clock three o'clock on a lazy sunday afternoon and you're flipping through and you get to the superstation tbs and they're playing Ooh. this they probably get sucked in probably, yeah yeah, yeah. If you have a hangover, you're 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 stuck. You're you're glued on that couch, brother. Yeah, and it's got a fun cast of characters. I mean, like in addition to the ones we mentioned, Larry Brigman plays uh, director, uh, deputy director uh, Troy Folger. Folger, he's good. Marianne Jean Baptiste plays um, Mir's ultra competent secretary, Gladys. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. You can watch a movie about them just like goofing around at the office together. Oh, for sure. Uh, Ken Lung is CIA agent Lee. Uh, David Hemmings, who we last saw in Gladiator yeah. last week, shows up as um, Harry Duncan, who um, bribes Chinese prison officials with the Bahamas, Robert Redford's Bahamas life savings while they are watching Baywatch. Back to back the Baywatch. To, back, to, back to the Baywatch, Sheely. And it, what a. There must have been a vibe in the early 2000s. Like the only joke screenwriters knew was like a Baywatch. Like. Oh, how stupid is it that people like Baywatch? God, like, it is stu- like, like stupid rubes like Baywatch. Well, and it's always like it's specifically it's like a foreign official <laughs> or like warlord. Like you'll be or in, in the like... case of Geely, like a guy with mental issues. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, that's true. That's like that's like in its own weird category. But you're right. Like in like action movies, they're either, either an idiot foreign official is either watching Baywatch or cartoons. Yep. Like those are the only two options. They have no other taste beyond that. This is to show that they have bad taste and they're idiots and they can have their eyes fucking pulled over on them while yeah. like um, cool Americans make moves. Nowadays, when people watch cartoons and movies, they'd be seen as heroes. Yeah. Tra- tragic, really. Man, they, they, they have a sense of humanity because like this terrorist is watching fucking up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey. yeah, this uh this like Russian general is watching Monsters Inc. Ooh. Yeah. Man. Yeah, he like, gets, he boy. understands he understands trauma. I understand yeah, it's like I understand all the emotions because I watched Inside Out. Now get on your <laughs> knees. So stupid. Baby brains. Baby brains. Baby, yeah, our brains are mush. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> Dripping yeah, out of my ears. Yeah. And there's like fun people like Charlotte Rampling shows up for a scene as like a ah! um, it, that in Germany. Um the weirdest thing about this movie though is Tony shoots this thing is like the in the most ultra modern way possible. Like flashy shit all over the place, computer graphics on the screens, freeze frames, all this kind of stuff. Play takes place in nineteen ninety one. No intention whatsoever to shoot this anachronist like 
of its time at all. Yeah. Like, shoot it like the last Boy Scout, my man. <laughs> like, you. <laughs> that movie still looks good. You're yeah, fine. Yeah, last Boy Scout looks awesome, dude. Yeah. And, but it's, so it's a little weird. And you're like, kind of like, oh, I know they just like track Robert Redford on the internet. Oh, wait, there was no internet in this. Like, and I wonder if it was like to, um, make it more analog in order for the spy game to be more fun mm. like because like cell phones are such a bummer in a movie like would be such a bummer in a movie like this mm-hmm. and i think like to like have Stephen delane have to like run around the cia office trying to see what office robert redford is hiding out in yeah is like a little of... more fun and adds to a little more drama yeah i think i think that tracks i think what you're saying tracks for sure I think that there just might be something like that. And they probably wanted to like fit in the timeline that Robert Redford could meet Brad Pitt in the Vietnam War. Yeah, which is like, it's funny. When you see that initially, you're kind of like, there's no way that like, but then like, it's 1991. It's only like, it's like less than 20 or it's like late, like early, it's like late or early 70s. Yeah. To late. Yeah, that tracks. That made sense. Late ni- yeah. Early 90s. And yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So basically, like, Red- Redford signed on this pretty fast. And mm-hmm. so did Tony Scott. Like, it wasn't pretty. The production was rather smooth in that regard. And then um, I guess Brad Pitt was friends with Tony Scott mm-hmm. after their experiences on True Romance. And they've been searching long and hard. I think we brought up Brad Pitt a few times in Tony Scott related movies to, um, you know, want to work with him again so the combination of redford and tony was just like i'll do it and apparently brad turned down the born identity to um do this one man he would have been really good in the born identity would have been good i mean matt's let you know boy that's a like biff with the sports almanac in back to the future two level like question of what could happen and yeah, because like, don't get me wrong, I like Matt Damon in it, but Brad Pitt is the boor. Yeah, and man. Matt Damon probably never would have um became a top three guy for that no. time. He was the top three guy if he hadn't done it. He would have been like a like a Josh Lucas. Yeah, it could have been very well. Could have been yeah. And I think he um and the apparently the Born Identity shoot was like everybody thought it was going to be a total bomb. Like it was just a mess of a shoot, and yeah. well, I think Brad like, like that... felt like, oh, Redford and Tony Scott, like this is a key, like they will Safe. cross the finish line. They will like, yeah. You know. And I think you know it's worth talking about too. It's like not only is they playing mentor, protege, father, surrogate, father, son in this movie, Brad Pitt is the new Robert Redford, at in two thousand one. Yes, even oh, especially like. Uh, I know you haven't seen Babylon yet, but Babylon feels like a very much like his role in it is feels very um, Redford. It feels like something that Redford probably would have done mm-hmm. like in the past. Although like there's obviously things that Redford wouldn't do in that movie that he does. But like, mm-hmm. you know, had uh, that movie been made in the uh, 90s and had a more 90s sensibility or if Robert Redford had been Brad's pit age, Brad Pitt's age, you feel like it's like that same vibe. It's that type of. I, th- I think the difference between them is Redford is like a definitive waspy leading man. Whereas I think Brad has always been kind of a closet. I would rather be a freaky character actor kind of deal. True. Yeah. But, um, they are the prettiest blonde men of their eras. <laughs> so there is that. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, 
Yeah, they're yeah. the hunk. They're the they're the they're, they're the they're the, they're the, they're the premier waspy hunks of their time periods. Yeah, and now it's like the Australians have taken the wasps. It's, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's like who, uh, they're like like a. Who knows if they've even taken the teachings of Jesus Christ into their hearts? <laughs> uh, tragic, yeah. It's like cinematic kudzu. Like. Yeah, but I, but I think that yeah, I think Spy Game definitely represents like a cho- uh, 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 passing of the torch. Yeah. In this kind of vein of, you know, Redford probably could have played um, Bishop to God. I don't know. Like, William Holden or somebody like that playing Mirror if this movie had been made in 1968 or mm-hmm. 1970 or something. Or even like, I mean, they're co- a little bit closer in age, but you can almost see Paul Newman playing Mirror to Robert Redford's Bishop if this movie had came out in 1969. Yeah, like another George Roy Hill joint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that could be interesting. I want to see that. I, I want to see it. I want to see this movie. This, yeah, this movie. I'm like this hypothetical yeah. time travel movie we need to make. God, we need to like, yeah, we need to get that damn that damn time machine. Or just have uh, get AI working on it. <laughs> <laughs> God, I'm fine. Leave yeah, I, I, so they um they took it on one interest. Another interesting thing is Brad Pitt had a definitive out because he had to go shoot Ocean's Eleven, and he was already on for that. So they had to rush the shoot. So Tony would do like he was getting like location upon location, like flipping it around and like, oh, now we're in Germany and like doing all sorts of crazy stuff like that in order to um get through this compressed timeline that they had to get Brad Pitt out. Mm-hmm. So he could do Ocean's Eleven, and so that was like that makes things tough. That makes that makes for a really tough shoot. But Tony was really ready to go. And the other thing Tony did in this one, I don't know if you noticed, was um, different color palettes for each of the timelines. Mm-hmm. So like Vietnam had kind of a yellowish hue to it. Germany was brown, and modern day was like a stark blue. And that was kind of a take on what Soderbergh did in Traffic. Like I think that oh. with the but Soderbergh did it for different locations, whereas um, Tony does it for different timeline. Yeah, that was yeah. I like I didn't I didn't uh, I saw I because I remember like yeah there was like that sepia tone with uh, yeah. Vietnam and so on and so and it was I I was fine with it. Sometimes that annoys me in movies, and sometimes I'm like, oh, this vibes with me. And oh, for me, it was like, like a total neutral. <laughs> in um ninety nine two thousand one, it was very novel. But I think if you did it today, it would feel c- cliched. Yes. Yeah, it did feel a little rote for sure. Yeah. So I think and I think if you do it today, I think I mean I personally would try and shoot it with the technology of the era. Yeah, would using how like I would do it. Yeah, don't yeah, using like a, a the macro version of an Instagram filter is not the best. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I, yeah, I would you know, think about film stocks, think about that kind of thing to mm-hmm. accomplish what you need to do, which I think like you know, others have others have done to kind of give different vibes like shoot this on 16 shoot this on digital that kind of thing to get you know the correct feeling of the moment but you know in 2001 tony and tony's tony was an early adopter and like enthusiastic user of whatever was modern yeah in the moment and it doesn't like for me it doesn't hamper the movie really it just it was just a thing like i don't know it was just a stylistic quirk that i uh was fine with i guess yeah. that's all yeah so spy game opened as we mentioned november 21st 2001 they opted to not delay it despite many other pieces of culture and art being delayed based upon or changed or edited 
due to the um, attacks on September 11th, 2001, like a month prior. Um, they opted to put it out. Um, the movie opened at number three in its opening weekend, uh, earning uh, $21.6 million, but then kind of cratered after that. Like everyone who saw it went and saw it, and everyone kind of it opened behind Monsters Inc. and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So I guess we're already in that phase of baby yeah. brain, baby, you know, yes. the baby brain being in charge. Um, it <laughs> uh, it ended up uh, making 143 million dollars worldwide, um, but on a budget of 115 million dollars, there was no expenses spared on this movie. It looks it though, looks great. Yeah. Like they spent a ton of cash on this movie, despite the compressed timeline, and it, it yeah, and like every Tony Scott movie, it looks phenomenal. Um, yeah. But generally speaking, generally they did consider it kind of financial disappointment. It kind of came and went, uh, much more so than like Enemy of the State or Crimson Tide, which kind of had this like lasting staying power. Although I do believe Spy Game did wonderful on DVD. And rent the rental market, and also in the dad watching on HBO or TNT market, which really where these movies live and die. Mm-hmm. The uh, Spy Game has a sixty-six percent on Rotten Tomatoes. The critical consensus reads: the outcome of the kinetic Spy Game is never in doubt, but it is fun watching Robert Redford and Brad Pitt work. Yeah, I yeah. agree with that consensus. B-plus cinema score, Roger Ebert gave it two and a half stars. He said, it is not a bad movie, mind you. It's clever and shows great control of craft, but it doesn't care. So it's hard for us to care about. Mm-hmm. And there is a by-the-numbers element to it. I think Redford's charm puts it over the top, but I don't know if it would be as memorable if that wasn't the case. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm with you there. should be noted, uh, produced by Douglas Wick and Mark Abraham. Uh, screen story by Michael Frost Beckner, screenplay by Michael Frost Beckner and David Arata, cinematography by Dan Mindel, and music by Henry Gregson Wag- Williams, uh, acolyte of Hans Zimmer, mm-hmm. and definitely taking on that gladiator insider side of the score yeah. level. Oh, is there like a lady singing something in Latin in this? Oh, you kind of an a, a attempt at kind of the Middle Eastern, faux Middle Eastern dramatic yeah. kind of thing <laughs> that you've seen, a t- like we saw in G.I. Jane as well. Um, it's a crutch, fellas. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta let go. You don't need, you don't, you don't need, you don't need this yeah lady yeah oh yeah 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 it's kind of Anya Lee gerard kind of you, you, you all know what we're talking about yeah we're so, gonna, like, our guy michael mann did it well because he's so sincere mm-hmm. about using that i mean this is the guy who sincerely used like audio slave songs multiple times <laughs> in his movies so you know he gets the pass he gets a pass i think it's a yeah it's a little by the numbers and i think people smelled it um, at the time, it isn't as, um, you know, again, it's like in the same vein that Enemy of the State is like a soft critique of the surveillance industry and surveillance state. This is a soft critique of the CIA compared yeah. to 
Three Days of the Condor's hard critique or the conversation's really hard critique of the surveillance state. <laughs> um, but it goes with the territory and goes with the times. The shit had softened by the 90s and 2000s. We had a little bit more faith in the system. Again, yeah. I want to see... Are we, we are in the time right now for conspiracy thrillers to return. Yeah! Like, conspiracy thrillers that are not, like, fucking QAnon or... Robert Davi directed joints. There are ways to question the system without thinking Tom Hanks is eating babies. Just get a get a Chalamet in there to do one of those. Like, uh, give him like a big. See, that's like he hasn't. I feel like that would kind of solidify him as a. It's the weirdest thing going on right now. Is like the left who with the kings of these movies, like Conversation and Three Days of Condor and all this shit. They like seem to have bought in with a corporatist mentality. Oh, yeah. They're not your friends, folks. No. They're not your friends. And you don't have to be a QAnon lunatic monster to also think that perhaps the gov- your government and the corporations are working against you. Don't be, a, don't, don't be a Disney. Don't be an adult Disney person. Yeah, there's a little thing called the banality of evil. Like, come yeah. the fuck on. Like, just because they're not, like, yeah, having weird rituals with, like, you know, fucking semen and uh, placenta or whatever doesn't mean what do, you, what do you think Pete Buttigieg's, like, comfortable relationship with Southwest Airlines meant to all of that traffic over Christmas time during the storms and stuff like that. What do you think is really going on there? Do they have your best interests? Is Mayor Pete your friend? Is yeah. he? Isn't he a CIA spook himself? Yeah, Mayor yes. Stooge. Uh, yeah, all counts. Except uh, he's, he's Stephen Delane. He's yes. one thousand percent Stephen he's, Delane. He's doing a little shimmy when fucking Blimpies is because on the menu in, because all those people are in charge now. They won. Yeah. They won the true like. The true visionaries are all got pushed out. Yeah, the even like yeah, even like like the dorks are. It's just it's just fucking yeah. Homework at, homework nerds homework nerds homework nerds. We don't even have like George H W Bush like Dune scions anymore. It no. is just all it's just legions of homework nerds. Uh, you think we need a better class of good guys? We we even need a better class of bad guys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, they're all, it's all just, it's all just the same gray goop, baby. We're all just gray goop now. At the end of the day, we're, we're, we're all being sold the America first Bible by Donald Trump Jr. That's where it's come down to. Yeah. The form of better, a, we used to have better bad guys. Yeah. In the form of an NFT where Trump is like, has a six pack and he, he's, he's wearing the Lincoln hat for you some know, reason. We're, we're, we're all at the hellacious big boy burger party together. <laughs> I wish. So enjoy Spy Game to watch a bad guy be really, really good at their job. So good, in fact, that you convince yourself that they are a good guy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that is it. <laughs> but again, it was Tony is in this place of okay, I tried with the biggest stars. We did well. But it it didn't didn't get all the way there. So Tony next beget, rekindles a relationship with another major superstar that defines the second half of Tony Scott's career. And I'm, of mm-hmm. course, talking about next week's film, Man on Fire, starring Denzel Washington, the second of their collaborations. But the first in which Denzel is front and center, hardcore, stone cold lead. 
of the movie and the first in which Tony begins to take some of his more psychedelic stylings even further. Full disclosure, I have actually not seen Man of Fire. I've just seen the trailer and I can judge it by that. And I am so excited. This is the one I've been wanting to watch the most out of every one of the movies we're covering. This is, like I said, this is Grandpa's Choice. I'm excited. Yeah. So, next week, we're talking Man on Fire. And Patrick, I got a curveball for you that you don't even know about. Oh? Uh, wait, I, I, I think I... Okay, tell me. Let me know what, you, what it is. I'm excited. We are, I, think you got, I think you got a guess. We will be watching on YouTube. I saw yes! there. I know Tony was... Scott's The Higher short film beat the devil and we're gonna be talking about that as well gary oldman's in it so is james brown let's There's go a title card that says gary oldman and james brown pump it into my veins i want to see it ah oh, man i read that in the tony scott book yeah. and i was like i, I if don doesn't bring yeah. this up we have to we gotta cover <sighs> so we'll be talking man on fire and beat the devil next week beat the devil is on youtube for free man on fire is currently on you guessed it folks the people streaming service Tubi. Ooh, doing the <laughs> Lord's can, work, Tubi. Doing the Lord's work can be rented or purchased simply. The week after that, we are back to 2001. We are back to Ridley Scott, and we are covering a key, a major, major film in Ridley Scott's filmography, Black Hawk Down. I'm I'm excited. I've not seen Black Hawk Down in a long time. So this is a movie. It's the one movie I downloaded on iTunes. And I used to watch this on my like iPod. I would watch. I would watch this movie on airplanes on my iPod. So I've seen this movie like ten times on like a Game Boy screen. Really, really excited about that. It's on HBO Max right now. Also, uh, rented and purchased on Blu-ray. Um, if you think Hannibal is a thrilling step up from that boring ass emotional slog that was Silence of the Lambs. Uh, if you thought Spy Game was a trenchant critique of the CIA and did not glori- glori- glorify or valorize any member of the Central Intelligence Agency, check in with us at the Academy Academy podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at the Academy. We've been putting up photos this past week from some of our favorite discoveries of 2022 if those could maybe there's a big photo of treat williams and some guys <laughs> that i put up <laughs> and among so, others maybe they'll intrigue you to check out some of our picks from last week's epic four-hour jam of an episode with jesse gant um check in with us let us know what you think did if you watch spy game if you rewatched hannibal if you saw them all for the first time mm-hmm. let us know uh, we got, but we are kind of heading into a new direction with our boys. I think in next week's episode, next two weeks with Man on Fire and Black Hawk Down, they are firmly entrenching themselves in the two thousands. Yes, this is like yeah, and this is where like this is the where Tony Scott comes into his own. This is like peak Scott. We're entering peak mm. Tony zone. Peak, yeah. Right. This is this is the Tony that all the film Twitter goons are obsessed with that we're yeah. coming 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 into here he is there are the constraints of jerry bruckheimer and plot are off of tony's shoulders completely and the joys of cool stuff and psychedelic cutting and denzel washington are all on the horizon i can't wait i'm excited this was a fun one so uh for patrick 
I'm Don. We will see you next week on the Academy Academy and Man on Fire. Yes, and uh, oh, Don, I just got um, I just noticed I got one of Hannibal's uh, in the mail. Hannibal sent me uh, one of his old files, and uh, actually, I bought it off of Barney. My bad, I bought it off of Barney. One of his old, and apparently, it's uh, he was uh, Norm from Cheers' psychologist. And he told Norm he should climb more hills. He climbed more hills, <laughs> and like his end game was just always go to the bar, just slowly <laughs> but surely drink yourself to death, Norm. <laughs> slowly but surely. Hang did you watch? The, did, did you watch the end of the credits of Hannibal? No. What is there? A, is there an end credit scene? It ends with him going H. Okay. Stupid. Okay. okay. Let's end Bye. our show with that. Too. Let's end our show with that too. <laughs> Get out of here.